Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of This Week in Retail, where we talk about the changing retail landscape, media, and technology. I'm your host, Jackie Montarbo, and let's dive in. I'm so excited to share with you guys today this special edition episode where I interview one of the best minds in retail, Doug Stevens. He is a veteran in the industry and has some of the most interesting ideas on what the future of retail could look like. Here's the full interview, and I hope you guys find it as interesting as I did. So just broadly to kick everything off, you've been a veteran in the retail space and have done everything from retail executive to retail consultant and most recently author. And now I've heard that you're writing a new book called Resurrecting Retail, which I'm assuming is talking about retail in a post-coronavirus world. So I'm super excited to read that. Can you tell your listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into the retail industry? Sure. So um, in fact, retail has been really the center of my career since the beginning. I got into retail at a relatively young age and worked my way up through the ranks in the days where there were ranks to work your way up through, (laughs) rungs on the ladder that you could climb, uh, which I did for about 25 years. And I uh, finished my career working in New York City as a general manager of a retail company. And I, in 2008, moved back to the Canadian marketplace and at that point decided to do my own thing. And that was starting Retail Profit. And the thought, Jackie, at the beginning of Retail Profit was really just that my observation after 20 or so years in the retail industry was that it was just a chronically short-sighted industry. It was Mm -hmm. very much a quarter-to-quarter, earnings report-to-earnings report kind of industry. And I felt that in 2008, 2009, in the midst of the financial crisis, there were so many things going on. There was, you know, this massive demographic change taking place huge economic upheaval, tremendous progress in terms of technology and social media. And I just felt there were so many changes taking place and retailers were just not getting out in front of them. So I I set about creating an agency that would do nothing but focus on the five to 10 year horizon in retail and take those insights out to corporations around the world. And that's really been our raison d'etre from the beginning. I love that phrase, chronically short-sighted. I think that's such an interesting idea and can be applied to so many different industries right now, not just retail, but I think you're seeing it really everywhere. And you're seeing, you know, technology companies just come in and have a much more long-term perspective and disrupt all of these different industries. So I love that idea. Can you share a little bit about your new book that you're writing and what prompted you to write it? Sure. Yeah, it was kind of interesting, actually. At the end of 2019, I I had determined that I I was going to write a a new book. And at that time, I was sort of thinking, you know, I, I felt that there was sort of this really interesting intersection developing between art and retail. Mm. And you know, while while the world was sort of focusing on the technologization of retail, I felt that there was this growing movement, uh, almost an artistic movement taking place in the industry. And so I was going to write a book about that. And then of course, you know, the pandemic happened, everything changed, you know, and I think it was March 3rd, uh, I was watching the news and I saw two things back to back, two stories back to back. One was about a sudden drop in global stock markets. And the other was a growing number of cases that were discovered in South Korea of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And uh, just in watching those two things back to back, I just thought, okay, this, this is not only going to be big, this could potentially be the lost year for yeah. everybody. 
you know, our business included. And, and so I, I got on the phone to my publisher the next day and I basically said, you know, that lovely little book I was writing about art and retail. I said, there's just not going to be an audience for it, you know. So uh, I, I said, the pandemic is the story and it's going to be the story for at least a year. Uh, I think that's what I need to write about. Yeah. And they said, go for it. So the book basically uh, posits a, a theory about what we are going to see unfold as a consequence of the pandemic. And you've probably heard the term, oh, it's the great acceleration. You know, everything that would have happened is now happening. It's just happening faster. And and so I really wanted to, to dig into that narrative and determine whether or not that was true. And what I found was surprising. Um, what I found was that in fact, we're not simply seeing an acceleration. On the surface, it looks like an acceleration of events that might have happened. What's really happening is COVID-19 is providing a unique window of opportunity for some brands to grow to a scale that would have been previously unimaginable. For those brands to move into categories that no one would have guessed that they would move into in, in such a deliberate way and to literally change the whole axis of the retail industry in doing so. And so I felt that, you know, this was a change that people weren't talking enough about, and they were certainly not talking enough about how businesses would need to operate in this post-pandemic world in order to survive. And so uh, that's what the book is about. It's called Resurrecting Retail, the Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World, and it's out spring of 2021. So excited to read it. Well, I think that's a really good segue into our next question, which is kind of talking about Amazon. I know in your most recent book, Reengineering Retail, you talk a lot about Amazon and their future. So I'd love to hear your opinions on Amazon's business now that they've grown so much during this pandemic and certainly since you published your book in 2017. Yeah. So, you know, in 2017, my position on Amazon was that <clears throat> part of the reason the retail industry found it very difficult to calculate Amazon's strategy was that they were making a, a fatal mistake. They, they were looking at Amazon as a retailer. And there's even a, a famous quote by uh, Fred Smith, who's the chairman of FedEx, who was interviewed at a conference. And he said in that interview, somebody was asking him, are you afraid that Amazon's going to become a shipping company and a competitor to you? And he said, well, what you have to understand is definitions. You know, Amazon's a retailer. We're a transportation company. By that point, Amazon was already doing something. Uh, 50 to 60% of its own shipping without the help of FedEx. So yeah. this, this happens over and over again. And, and so Amazon is basically a data information and technology company that happens to have a huge marketplace of products. But it's the fact that they're not a retailer that makes them so dangerous. And I almost feel, Jackie, like Amazon's more it's less, a, it's less a company and it's more sort of an, an operating process. Amazon just looks at, a, at an industry, they look at a category, be it healthcare, banking, education, whatever, and they sort of say, okay, so what's the real central problem in this, in this industry or in this vertical? Show us the worst problem that it has. And then they attack that problem with a combination of technology, with data, with information, uh, with devices, and they solve it, whether we're talking about shipping problems or, you know, any, any other industry problem, they attack it, they solve it. And by doing so, they change the terms of reference in that industry. They become the high watermark all of a sudden and put everyone else back on their heels. And they just do that over and over again. So in this book, what I'm going to be talking about is that evolution of Amazon, this apex predator, to new food sources. Uh, the idea that 
just selling more running shoes and you know mobile mobile devices and and big screen TVs that is not going to allow them to continue this torrid pace of growth that they're on but what we can see them doing now are laying in the foundational pieces to attack these extremely lucrative and oligopolistic categories like healthcare, education, banking, shipping, transportation, et cetera. A new era, not just for Amazon, but for Alibaba, JD.com, and Walmart as well. An unimaginable growth uh, coming. And, and essentially, that, that is going to scorch the earth in the middle of the market. The mid-tier of the market will be gone uh, the convenience end of the market will be gone. The discount end of the market will be challenged. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's been really interesting to see Amazon shift into these businesses that you never would have thought they would go into. I mean, grocery, for example, they've completely upended that market. And so I think it's been really, really interesting to see that all play out. And, and the danger of Amazon, of course, too, is that they, you know, where most businesses will say, okay, We'll try this. Uh, we'll try it for like a quarter. We'll give you know mm -hmm. some new concept or some new new uh, technology. We'll give it a shot, um, and then three months in, they sort of you know they say, oh well, didn't pan out the way we thought it would, and they move on. Amazon just has the luxury of being able to sit on an idea for a long, long time, or or even just sit on a particular market, like you know the South Asian market. You know they'll just sort of set up shop on the ground and then just wait years for the right time to enter that market. Most companies just don't have the luxury of those kinds of timelines to explore and experiment and learn. And so it's just sort of a built-in advantage that having that much capital gives you. Yeah. And I think really trying out different industries and failing and trying again is part of their culture. And you're right, it's built into their operating model, especially from a profit revenue perspective. So they have AWS that kind of gives them that cushion from a financial perspective to go out and see these industries and try new things. So they really do have a lot of runway, I think. Well, and that's the, that's the particularly scary thing about Amazon moving into these other categories, Jackie, because once you start, once you start becoming an education company and a banking company mm -hmm. and, a, and an insurance company, a healthcare yep. company, the margins are astronomical, right? Yeah. And, and at that point, Amazon, who for the last 25 years has been subjected to people saying, why don't you make money in retail? Why don't you make money in your marketplace? At that point, they can say, we don't need to make money in our marketplace. We're making right. a fortune. In fact, we can afford to give the products in our marketplace away at cost. And that's right. when they become extremely dangerous. Yeah. Well, and certainly, you know, in an industry like banking or insurance, if you have Amazon Prime as your member base, there's kind of this positive selection bias in a sense that makes that industry much more profitable for you. So that increases their profitability and success in these industries that have kind of dated models, which is also a really interesting idea. But on that note of Amazon, you know, obviously they have so much growth potential and there's been so much talk around antitrust. So what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that Amazon could face as a business going forward? I mean, obviously antitrust is one of them. Yeah. And, and I talk about that in the book as well, because that's a very legitimate issue. There's, it's mm -hmm. no secret that, you know, the European Union, uh, the U.S. Congress, et cetera, have been uh, for years now contemplating the degree to which Amazon is becoming too large, too powerful, too all-consuming in the retail market. But, but I, again, uh, I point to the fact that that's why I say this is not just purely an acceleration, COVID-19, because COVID-19 really 
truly creates a unique window of opportunity for Amazon in the sense that, and, and this was sort of evident in the congressional hearings that took place, I guess it's almost a month ago now. Bezos is like Teflon right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And Amazon, you know, for all of its sins, and, and, there, and there are sins, it is the lifeline right now for yeah. so many consumers to the things that they need. And, you know, in the same hearings, we saw Google taken to task. Well, Google's the information lifeline for consumers and Facebook, love them or hate them. They are the social connection point for so many people out there. And so the pandemic provides this insulation, really, against the kind of heat that these companies would take normally for moving into some of these other categories. I mean, Google just announced an education product about a week ago. Uh -huh. They're getting into that market too. So again, it, you know, it, it's a once in a hundred year opportunity for these companies while the rest of the world isn't looking to make progress in these other categories. I completely agree. I think, you know, as consumers become more and more reliant on these technology companies and these technologies become more and more ingrained in our everyday life, it's almost as if they're too big to be dismantled and too important to the day-to-day -day lives of consumers for the government to come in and break them up at this point. Absolutely. You know, I mean, Amazon has, has certainly risen to the challenge through the pandemic in terms of you know, making adaptations to its supply chain, to its warehouses and facilities to get people the things that they need. They've performed very well. Amazon also tends to do very well when it comes to things like customer service. They rank extremely highly. So this isn't a company, you know, I mean, I think consumers have worse sentiment about their banks, their insurance companies, the universities that are gouging their kids and putting them into debt. I mean, you know, if, if Congress wants something that'll keep them busy, let's look at those verticals. But in terms of public opinion, and public opinion drives political discourse, public opinion around Amazon right now isn't so bad. You know, everyone knows they have warts, they have some, some uh, uh, you know, issues in their warehouses with working conditions, we're, we're all aware of that. But, you know, just on the face of it, I think consumers are fairly happy with having Amazon around for the things that they need. Yeah, especially during this time. So shifting gears a little bit, obviously so much has transpired in the retail industry over the past five months. And I really enjoyed reading some of your articles about the future of physical retail stores. Can you share a little bit about your point of view on what the future of physical retail could look like? Sure. So, you know, let's go back in time. Let's go back to pre-pandemic retail world, if we can remember okay. what that looks like. You know, the debate in retail for at least the last 10 years has been, what is the relative value of physical retail versus online retail? And, you know, we've always sort of thought of them as being these two distinct channels. And then, you know, over the last, uh, say, seven, eight years or so, we started using this term omni-channel. We sort of said, look, it's not multi-channel anymore. It's omni-channel. It's all one big experience. And the consumer glides from, you know, experience to experience, moment to moment. Channels don't exist. Okay, fine. I, I've sort of looked at it differently. In, in re-engineering retail, what I actually saw when I, when I looked below the surface was I saw an industry that wasn't just becoming one channel. It was that the two channels, physical stores and, and media or digital channels, were actually trading roles, fundamentally trading traditional roles. So what I mean by that is this. If we go back, let's go back a thousand years. 
to really pre-pandemic retail days. So a thousand years ago, where did people where did people get their information? Where did they hang out? Where did they experience you know culture and uh, and and socialize? It was the market bazaar. It was the center of town, the agora, the placa, whatever part of the world you were in. Every European city has this little central square where people used to get together and meet. That was really the primary media channel for most consumers. And then, of course, the printing press comes into effect, and that changes the nature of communication. Then it's radio, then it's television, and now it's digital. Digital's the campfire that we all gather around every day. The problem is, though, that the the online space is becoming extremely crowded. Every brand out there is vying for attention in the space. The cost of acquiring new consumers on, on digital channels now is, is prohibitive in some cases. Brands like Outdoor Voices can't even, they can't even succeed anymore by acquiring consumers online because the lifetime value of the consumer doesn't add up to the cost of acquiring them. Um, so a lot of brands are being priced out, but, but there's an interesting thing happening in the background, or at least it was pre-pandemic, is that people, and particularly young people, were lining up to get into stores around the world. Almost anywhere I went, whether it was, you know, Tokyo, New York, San Francisco, didn't matter. You'd, you'd get up in the morning, go out into the streets, and you would find the lineups of people waiting to get into physical stores. So in an interesting way, what's happening is stores are becoming a form of media, a really powerful form of experiential physical media where brands can engage consumers in many cases for the first time, introduce them to the brand culture, introduce them to the products and really treat them to a remarkable galvanizing sort of experience and then set them free to go and buy from you on whatever channel they want because media is becoming a more effective version of the store. I can buy more easily, I can get more information online, and I can have anything I want shipped to my door in a couple of days. So that's what I sort of saw. So far from physical retail losing its value, it was actually increasing in value, but, but not as a distribution vehicle for products, but as a distribution vehicle for experiences and branded media. And, and I believe post-pandemic, that will be the case to an even higher extent. Right. It's almost as if storefronts are like a showroom where you come and experience the brand for the first time. Maybe you try some things on, see how you like it, what size you are, and then you go online to actually purchase the product. Exactly. That's where you carry on your relationship with that brand from that point forward. Not to say that you won't pop back into a store occasionally, but, uh, but yeah, to use the store as a customer acquisition mechanism. One of, one of my friends is Rachel Schechtman, who started Story in New York City. And Rachel puts it in an interesting way. She's, she just said, rent is the new cost of customer acquisition. We've I always like looked that. at rent as a distribution cost, right? But she said, no, it's a customer acquisition cost. And, and when you put it that way, it really makes sense. But, but it also forces you to th- rethink the, the way you build and manage stores. You know, if you started to, if you started to think, okay, if our store is media, uh, so in other words, it's almost like the consumer's walking into a living, breathing advertisement for our brand, all the best things about our brand. How would that change the way you locate stores, the way you build them, the way you staff them, um, you know, the way you merchandise them and, and what happens in those stores? And what we've seen over the pandemic, interestingly enough, is that retailers are now starting to use their stores as stages, as studios. And they're actually pumping content out to 
the broader world from the confines of those stores. So again, it's sort of pushing this media narrative even further. So on the topic of, you know, changes in the retail space, what are your thoughts on some of the bankruptcies in this space? Do you think these traditional retailers will actually be able to rebound as many of the bankruptcies for chapter 11? Or do you think these bankruptcies are more delaying the inevitable? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I'll ask you, were, really, were there any surprises in the bankruptcy lists? You know, there weren't. Not, no. no. And I think I think what was interesting to me is most of these companies are just really restructuring their debts, kind of with the promise that they are going to come out the other end end. And I just don't see that happening, honestly. I mean, just what you just said about their business model of having their storefront be the point of distribution doesn't make sense in this new world that we're entering. So there were no surprises to me. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, much the way COVID-19 in, in humans is sort of zeroed in and attacked pre-existing conditions. It's done exactly the same thing to governments. It's done exactly yeah. the same thing to businesses. No. So if you were a government and you had terrible debt or you had, you know, a bad economy going into this crisis, you know, COVID-19 is just sort of, you know, ransacked your, your economy. If you're a business and you went into this crisis with inordinate levels of debt, as you just pointed out, and, and there are a lot of companies out there stressed by private equity debt, um, then, then that was a problem. If you had an ailing brand, you know, brand, losing brand equity, it became a problem. If you were too reliant on physical stores, uh, it became a huge problem. So COVID-19 sort of zeroed in on, on all these vulnerabilities. And so the first wave of bankruptcies we, has been among the, the most vulnerable in the herd. You know, they have sort of been taken, taken out by this. My bigger concern is that now we, we go through that first wave. Now what happens is we go through a period of what I call a fractional economy. So we're never we're not going to get back to 100 or 110 percent of pre-pandemic sales. Why? Well, because stores are going to deal with levels of, of social distancing, of viral mitigation. You're going to have older consumers sidelined out of health concerns. You're going to have younger consumers fearful about spending money and um, you know uh, uh, potentially job losses. So we're going to operate in a fractional economy. What that means is that businesses may be achieving. 50, 60, 70% of normal revenues, which means they're going to start to attack their cost bases, reducing them proportionately. That leads to growing unemployment that becomes more persistent. That leads to consumer spending pullback. That leads to a really shitty Christmas season. And that leads to more bankruptcies in Q1, Q2 of next year. But this time, it will be healthier companies that start to go just because they can't handle the duration and the stress of this crisis. That's, that's my fear, that we lose good companies in the mix. Yeah, I am fearful too that we haven't really seen the worst of the worst of all of this. I think, you know, the economy in a lot of ways has been artificially propped up. And I would expect once a lot of that money is drained out of the economy, we're going to see a lot more damage come through. I agree. Yeah, you're right. Stimulus went a long way to... Yeah giving consumers a sense of assurance you know it's mm -hmm. it's not it's not so bad but but already as you say we're starting to see you know what happens when that runs out or when it's delayed by congress in this case yeah absolutely so on this theme of kind of consumer spending consumer behavior has been such a hot topic in the retail industry 
And I think one of the things that's been really, really interesting is that consumers have had so much downtime during quarantine to really reflect on their priorities and become somewhat more introspective. What is your thoughts on how retailers are going to have to shift their marketing to reach these consumers who are now rethinking a lot of these hyper-consumerist purchasing behavior? Yeah, a great question. And and one that was sort of central to my thinking too in in researching this book. You know, what what is the consumer's mind state in crisis? What what's going through the average person's mind as they face this health threat, uh, you know, followed by this sort of uh, lagging economic threat. And it led me all the research I was doing led me to one gentleman by the name of Ernest Becker who is no longer alive. He was a uh, social psychologist in the 1960s who developed a theory called terror management theory. I won't won't take you down the psychological (laughs) rabbit hole all the way anyway, but, but suffice to say, what he discovered was that there is a, there is a very distinct and unique human trait. And that is the consciousness, not only of life, but of death that we are, as a species, we are cursed with the consciousness of our own mortality. And what he posited was that in order to function in the face of that reality, the reality that at any moment we could be, you know, killed by a virus or a comet or, you know, a natural disaster, we create a worldview. We create distractions in our lives. We have social communities that we belong to. We have value in those social communities. And all of this, this worldview that we construct is a means of distracting us from the inevitability of death. And um, so uh, that theory led me to another gentleman by the name of Sheldon Solomon, who is a social psychologist at Skidmore College in upstate New York. He and three other researchers actually further developed this theory into what they called mortality salience theory. And that was that these worldviews are great to insulate us most of the time, but every now and then, you know, a plane flies into a, into a skyscraper in New York, or there's a, a pandemic, or there's a financial crisis, and our, our uh, worldview comes tumbling down. It, it, it just falls to pieces. And so as consumers, we begin... Uh, steadfastly reconstructing that worldview. And that includes a lot of positive behaviors and it it may include a lot of negative behaviors. You know, um, all the partisan politics that we've seen, sort of the outrage on both sides of the Black Lives Matter debate, that's mortality salience at work. People feel that death is near and they become more entrenched in their political their political affiliations. Uh, We've seen massive consumption of things designed to distract, bread makers, board games, you know, all all of these things that are just distraction. Uh, We've seen some activity in the luxury market as people seek to restore their sense of self-esteem, their sense of value. We've seen some luxury spending taking place. Uh, Beauty is up uh, because of the lipstick effect and and people seeking to sort of rebuild that sense of confidence. So basically, uh, this this whole idea of how will consumers move forward out of the crisis, it's a rebuilding process, but it starts with safety and security. And what makes this crisis tricky is the protracted nature of it. We don't know how long this is going to go on. But until the medical threat is, you know, is quashed, the economic threat will always linger. Uh, 
And as long as there is that threat, consumers will stay in that initial phase of seeking control, seeking distraction, seeking safety and security. So the moral of the story is it could be some time before we see any uh, real meaningful life in the luxury market. Uh, but in the meantime, companies like the ones that we were just talking about are going to do tremendously well because they are in the business of basically just um, selling people distractions, um, you know, and getting those distractions to their doorstep in a day or less. Right. And they're really in the business of the convenience and not having to, you know, make life more complicated than it already is right now. They really, yeah. you know, have that ease of use. And you raise a good point too, that, you know, we have an opportunity here in this crisis as consumers to do one of two things to either you know just sort of continue to consume um in in what sheldon solomon says is sort of a consumption as a death denying sort of phenomenon that we just you know we want more distractions more stuff we need to buy more things you know we distract ourselves that way there will also be a percentage of consumers though that do take the time to reflect that do sort of, you know, to your point, begin to see the interconnectedness of things, you know, that, wow, okay, so something happens in Wuhan, China, and it affects us here. Well, maybe our behaviors are affecting other people. And so, you know, maybe the sustainability debate becomes more clear, maybe social responsibility. Right. We've seen frontline workers being really commoditized, abused, uh, through this crisis, you know, under the guise of being heroes, you know, maybe it makes us think more about uh, human rights and working conditions. And so there, there may be, uh, to your point, a reflection, you know, on the part of some consumers where they come out of this and say, you know what, I really don't need more stuff. I need family. I need human connection, you know, the important stuff. Right. Yeah. And helping people to understand that there's a cost behind all of these extremely cheap things that they're always buying from Amazon. There's just, there's environmental costs. There's a human cost. So I would really hope, I think the fashion industry really needs a wake up call like that. So I would really hope that that's the direction that we're headed. Yeah, me too. In fact, um, I'm doing a podcast for the business of fashion. It's a six part series. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be debuting. Um, uh, actually, first first week in September, it's debuting, wow. and yeah, and one of the episodes is is about that. It's about the the climate crisis as it applies mm -hmm. to the fashion industry, and the fact that um, what the episode sort of discovers is that we may be chasing the wrong problem if we're if we're chasing environmental change and sustainability in fashion. It might actually be a symptom of the problem, but it's not the core problem. And, and the episode sort right. of digs into what we think is really at the heart of the sustainability problem. Yeah, that's one thing working in fashion. One thing I've recognized is, you know, there's all of these sustainable fabrics and part of the production process may be sustainable, but the core problem is that there's too many goods being produced and there's too much consumption happening. And in my opinion, that's kind of the issue that we really need to look at as consumers if we want to say we care about sustainability, we need to make fewer 
higher quality products and use them for longer. 100%. And, and there's no reason why we can't do that. And companies like Patagonia have been proving that, that is a, it's a very viable competitive strategy. It, it, the other issue is, is simply simply economic inequality. I mean, we live in a world where, you know, a Bangladeshi garment factory worker makes $95 a month. How do I convince a woman making $95 a month that she should care about the quality of water that I get up and, and drink or wash my car with? You know, uh, how, how can I convince her that the air quality is an important issue when she is, is earning $95 a month? And so we have a situation where where a portion of the world is essentially robbing another portion of the world of their labor, their resources, their quality of living in order to satisfy our insatiable desire for more and more stuff, much yep. of which we wear once, wash once, and throw in the garbage. And then it sits mm -hmm. in a landfill for over a thousand years attempting to decompose. I mean, if we, if you were it's sitting crazy. down with a clean sheet of paper, would you, would you build this? You know, it is, it's insane. So these are the things we have to, I think we, we, we have a, a unique opportunity to confront these things right now. And it would be a shame if when this is over, we just carry on like it, like nothing happened. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, again, I hope that the shift in consumer purchasing behavior will really start to address this problem. I think people are really realizing that, especially during quarantine, you know, we don't need all of these things that we're buying all the time. For our final question, what is your best piece of advice for retailers looking to succeed in a post-coronavirus world? You know, I would say, um, I would say a couple, a couple of things. I think first and foremost, you know, Joseph Pine, who I was fortunate enough to have write the foreword for my last book, Reengineering Retail, he, he um, sort of the father of the experience economy, Joe Pine, um, wrote a book about it in the 90s, well before anyone was talking about experiences <clears throat> as a commodity. But he, he has a good way of putting it. And he says, you know, what consumers are looking for today is one of two things. They either want time well spent or they want time well saved. And, and, and so companies like Alibaba, Amazon, JD.com, Walmart, they're in the business of saving people time. And, and you know, in, to some extent in Walmart's case, they would argue it's also about saving money. There, that leaves a huge opportunity in the marketplace for businesses that give consumers time well spent. And so a really good place to start for any business is to say to themselves, when a consumer makes the effort to either get in their car or come to one of our stores or to you know, uh, go to our, our website and explore there, are we really treating them to time well spent? When they leave, do they walk out and say, well, that was the most enjoyable part of my day, you know, and I, I can't wait till I get to do that again. Or are they leaving disheartened, frustrated, you know, um, kind of nonplussed, bored, whatever? If the answer to the question isn't an affirmative, yes, we give them time well spent, you got to fix that. Because if you don't, honestly, it'll be lights out in the new era everyone is going to rise to a new level of game. The competitive stakes are going to be higher. Amazon and others are going to put a bubble around consumers that is almost impenetrable. And the only way you're going to get consumers is if you make it worth their while to escape that bubble and come to your business because you're so remarkable. Um, can't do that. It's going to be a really, really rough decade.
That's nice to hear though. I like the idea that there's something on the other side of Amazon and Walmart. There's something that's grounded in emotion and experience. So that still exists in the consumer economy. It's all not just hyper transactional. And, and, you know, and the only other thing, Jackie, I would add to that is on a more human level, forget about business for a second. I, I, would, I would also suggest that, you know, we, we think of social issues and, and environmental issues in terms of the responsibility for businesses to do less harm to the environment, you know? So right. we're gonna cut our CO2 emissions, we're going to cut waste, we're going to improve living standards somewhat. We're, gonna, we're going to do less harm going forward. That's one way of looking at it. But someone said to me recently, they said, you know, if, if someone said, I'm gonna poison your drink, but I'm gonna poison it with a little less poison, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do a little <laughs> less harm to you. You'd say, well, wait a minute. I don't want any poison in my drink at all. Thank you very much. So the fact that a company says, you know, we're going to put less CO2 into the atmosphere, that's not a badge of honor. The, the right answer is we're going to stop putting CO2 into the environment at all. We're going to stop using nylon, rayon, and these fabrics that don't decompose for years. We're going to stop putting sludge in the water of communities in Bangladesh and other places, making their water undrinkable. We're just going to stop doing that. That's the right, right. answer. So don't try and do less harm, do more good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's this idea going around the business community of stockholder versus stakeholder. And I think it's this really interesting concept where future businesses are going to not just be, you know, catering to their stockholders, but also all the stakeholders involved, which include employees, customers, the environment, etc. So I'm really excited to see how that evolves. Me too. Well, thank you so much, Doug. This was an amazing conversation. I'm so excited that we got to connect. For our listeners, anyone who's on the line, if you want to keep up with Doug, you can find him on Twitter at Retail Profit. I follow him very closely there. He shares a ton of amazing articles. And his book called Reengineering Retail, you can also buy on Amazon. And it sounds like his next book, Resurrecting Retail, is going to be out next spring. And I believe you can pre-order it on Amazon, right? You can. Well, thank you again, Doug. You bet. I enjoyed it, Jackie. Thank you. Yeah. And that is all I have for you guys for this week in retail. I hope you guys enjoyed today's special edition episode with Doug Stevens. Make sure you go check out his book. And I am actually going to be taking a break from this podcast and newsletter over the next two weeks because I'm getting married and then going on my honeymoon. So I will be returning on August 2nd and I will see you guys then.